The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. I'm actually quite excited for this conversation with uh, Joseph Brown. Spent last hour or so reviewing some of his YouTube videos, which are great in the way that uh, they communicate complex issues. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, Joseph Brown of Heresy Financial. So, Joseph, before we get too deep into markets and your thoughts on things, introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get interested in markets? How did you build the YouTube channel, which for me, I'm particularly interested in? And what are you doing now? Sure thing. Yeah. So, Back back about eight years ago, I became a stockbroker, and I'm very curious by nature. So it was one of my you know kind of hobbies, basically how money works, how the economy works, and started doing some self studying, reading books, learning about you know things from outside of the belly. Just got to a point where I wanted to branch out on my own. Didn't want to keep on selling what I was selling anymore. So about three years ago, quit and started doing a couple of things, including the the YouTube channel that that you referenced there. And I chose the name heresy because heresy, it's an old, for anybody who's not aware, it's an old religious word that means an opinion at odds with what is generally accepted. So like Galileo, he was a heretic because he said the world went around the sun, not the other way around. But eventually uh, people realized that was the truth and it went out in the end. So the, you know, I talk about things that the financial mainstream typically considers heresy, but uh, I believe will be proved to be true in the end. All right. So I always like to, when I listen to different guests, try to figure out where to branch off the conversation. So I want to focus a little bit on the word curiosity that you mentioned, because I think there's a real lack of curiosity, not just when it comes to uh, markets and self-learning, because people just look at a chart, but also when it comes to uh, mainstream media and traditional narratives. It doesn't sound like a strange question, but how do you keep yourself curious? Because it's very easy just to just accept an answer as opposed to just keep asking questions. That's a great question. I, I think it depends, at least for me, on the, the goal or the outcome that you're looking for. So like a good example of this is when I was 16 learning to drive stick shift, I, nobody could teach me how to drive stick shift. I tried multiple people and they kept on telling me, hey, you push the clutch down, you let off slowly as you push on the gas and it just wasn't working for me. And I, it wasn't until I found somebody who understood the way a, a manual transmission worked, who could explain to me what was going on inside the engine. Once I understood what was going on inside the manual transmission when I was moving the clutch and trying to you know, get into first gear and change gears, then it suddenly clicked and I was able to drive stick from that day forward. So for me, it's always been about the goal, the outcome. If I want to accomplish something, really, I, I, I want to know how the whole machine works and understanding how the machine works will allow me to use it in a way to achieve my goals. And so it was the same thing with investing, the economy, the money machine, banking, the financial industry. I need to know how the whole machine works because then I can use it to my advantage and start to you know win at the, at the game of money. All right. Now on that point, incentives are a big lubricant of, of the machine working, right? In terms of the different cogs of that. Mm -hmm. I want you to talk about on a very simplistic level, how does, the, from your vantage point, how does the machine of leverage work and how incentives maybe cause that to want to persist, which creates dynamics like what we have now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is great. So we have to, I'm going to go through like a really, really quick history of monetary systems because we have to kind of start a long time ago to understand. Basically, the first caricature of a monetary system is a purely gold coin system 
no fractional reserve banking, no bank notes. Is everybody has their gold coins and they just trade their gold coins for goods and services. Money supply is stable. And so there's deflation over time because as the total wealth increases, more houses are built, more food is grown, stuff gets cheaper because it's divided by the same number of units of money. At a certain point, that deflation causes people to say, hey, my gold coin buys too much stuff for me right now. So it's too valuable. I don't want to carry it around with me. I need to give it to somebody to keep it safe and have change for it. That's the invention of the bank. So people go and put their gold coins in safe storage and get a little receipt that says, hey, you can come get your gold at any point. At that point, you still have the same monetary system as pure gold. It's just paper instead of gold. But there's an incentive on the banker's end who looks around and says, nobody's turning in their paper anymore. They're just using their paper as money. I have a second service I can offer to make money, which is lending. And so what they do is they say, hey, anybody can come and they can get a loan from me if they want. But they're not lending money from one person to another. When somebody walks into that bank, the bank issues them the same note that says, hey, you can come get gold at any time that everybody else has. And so you go from, let's say, 10 pieces of gold circulating in an, in an economy to 11 pieces of gold circulating in an economy. Even though there's not the gold to back it up, there's 11 pieces of paper that all say there's that gold. So now you have inflation at the invention of fractional reserve banking and people go around and now you have a growth in the money supply because somebody has an incentive to really for fraud to say, hey, there's more money than there really is. As that new money enters the economy, money supply grows faster than the goods and services grow, which means now you have inflation for the first time. People feel rich because the prices of their stuff starts going up, but it's based on debt. And so debt either is defaulted or it's paid back. At a certain point, that debt starts to get paid back, which means now the money supply starts to shrink instead of grow, which it's been doing. You have the invention of the boom-bust cycle. Now prices start to fall, people get scared, things collapse, debt defaults happen, and you have a local bank run in the end. Fast forward from there, you have governments looking and saying, hey, this is bad, but it's not because of the fraud, it's because we weren't doing it big enough, so they nationalize it and invent a central bank which is a bank for the banks. Same exact thing happening, it's just scaled up. And so now it, the banks themselves don't have to be vulnerable to a bank run because they can rely on pulling gold from the central bank, which pulls it from the whole system. You don't have any more safety there. You actually have more risk because it's spread out through the whole system. So more risk can build up before everything collapses. And so you have in the era of central banking, you have national events of hyperinflation, you have wars, World War One, World War II. You have all these terrible things happening, the Great Depression, because all these risks are built up across the system. But at the base of it, you still have that structure where money, new money, is loaned into existence. That causes prices to rise, which causes the boom, but it's built on debt. And as that debt then eventually starts to get paid off or defaulted on, you have the collapse because it's built on debt. And the collapse causes the depression. Or if they try and stop the collapse, then you tip over the other way into the hyperinflation. And then uh, that brings us to today where we don't have bank runs anymore because the gold standard was broken. So you don't have somebody going to exchange their cash for gold coins. But you still have an exchange bank run on the economy because as people realize, hey, things are getting tight, my money's worth less, instead of going and exchanging your paper for gold, real wealth, you go and exchange your paper for economic goods like food and energy and houses, because uh, if you don't, you might not be able to get as much for it in the future uh, as, as you can right now. Right. And that kind of dovetails a little bit into the name of the space and that name of the space, Inflation Screwed Social Security. I got that because I watched your video on five ways of, of fixing America. So I want you to kind of do a synopsis of that video on YouTube. I'll put the link up in the nest shortly in terms of how to solve the debt crisis, which inherently I would argue is what solves the inflation crisis. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. So because we don't have anything anchoring 
the expansion of money in terms of like gold, they've been able to since the 70s really kind of go crazy with that. And so every time you would like in the last 30 years, every time you would have had a contraction based on, you know, the money supply collapsing as from the false expansion of the money supply. So social security is based on the based on you have to have money coming in to go out. It's not funded by general taxes like all the other federal government expenses. And the reason they set it up that way is because it is it was technically illegal, unconstitutional to set set a transfer of wealth up like that. And so the way that they got it passed was by falsely naming it like an insurance product where you put money in and then you get benefits paid out. But really, it's just a Ponzi scheme where the money that you have going in is paying for the money that is going out to everybody else. And they cannot fund it through general taxes. And so it's bankrupt. There's, I think it's like you know eight years left, nine years left at this point. And it was based on the assumption that our population and workforce would continue to grow so that the money coming in would always exceed the money going out. But that's not the case anymore. The money going in does not exceed the money going out by a huge margin because of population differences. And so that's something that will at some point turn into a political issue that they will just change to fund with general taxes. But the the amount that they have to pay out on that is so large that they won't be able to fund it with pure taxes. So they'll have to fund it with borrowing as well. But as we remember, a couple of times have happened recently. The government tries to borrow too much. The private economy can't handle it. Rates start to explode, especially short-term rates. So the Federal Reserve has to step in and print money to loan to the government. Social Security, military, healthcare, education, all the biggest expenses that the government has, it eventually gets monetized by the Fed, which means they're just printing the money to loan to the government. And it's not real debt. It's just money that's being created out of thin air to finance these things. So every time you move forward on one of these one of these crises hit, one of these stops in the roads happens, they just resort to printing to fund it instead of allowing the deleveraging to happen and taking it on the chin and saying, we have to suffer the consequences of the bad decisions we made in the past. Even though it's short-term painful, it'd be long-term healthier. We're sacrificing the long-term for the short-term. Okay, now uh, you got to assume, or maybe not assume that Policymakers are aware of these things, at least somewhat. I guess the question is ultimately, do they care to deal with it now or just, you know, kick it, kick the can down the road for somebody else who ends up being empowered to to deal with? But why isn't why is it that you think this kind of goes back to the curious question? Why is it that you think that let's call the average voter or American isn't able to see what's going on and use that as the lightning rod for, you know, change, right? Because this seems pretty obvious. I mean, the numbers are obvious, right? The, the the incentive misalignments are obvious, yet you never really have change at the top because voters don't seem to either care or be that aware of it. So uh, I think on one hand, the vast majority of people, the, the way that anybody learns anything by default is from the first five years as a kid, you learn it from your parents. And so just strictly from a money, pers- a money perspective, the, the way that everybody is trained to think about money and economics happens in the first couple of years of their life from the way that their parents live their life. But their parents live their money habits from their parents before them in the first five years. And so we've got a really long history of influence on the way we handle our money and think about money and think about the truths of money from monetary systems that haven't existed in 100 years. So you think about simple things like saving, staying out of debt, working hard, and just eventually like you'll be okay. That tends to work out really well under a sound money system, or at least a partially sound money system. Doesn't work out well under a purely fiat system. But most people still operate that way because that's just the way they think the world works, because that's the way our ancestors have always kind of lived by. And so it's difficult to, to reshape your most fundamental views when you don't know that they're wrong. And so that's that's one thing I would say just for the average person just going about living their lives, they just don't realize that it's you know completely backwards right now. So you know, it's almost like the transfer of ignorance from generation to the next generation. Right, exactly. And it's it's not necessarily, you know, illogical because that's the way that the world has worked for most of human history. We have not had a pure fiat system globally until 1971. And so it's a, it is a relatively new phenomenon. And so it's not necessarily illogical. It's very unfortunate, though. In terms of policymakers, I think there's two answers. On, on one end, I think you have people that say the system is doomed. There's nothing we can do about it. 
So might as well get as much benefit out of it right now, squeeze as much juice out of it right now as possible, because it's all coming to an end anyway. Kind of the very short term mindset of no matter what we do, you know, why we'll just live it up while we can. I think that's a very real mindset for anybody who knows what's going on. The other thing is, though, the other mindset that I see a lot is just a, a, a huge misunderstanding of the way that the world works. And it, it, it looks like the, the policy results look like malevolence, but it's actually just pure incompetence. So this I would attribute to like the, the, the very the modern monetary theory, Keynesian outlook on the economy of saying, hey, basically, the, it, the strong man, the steel man argument comes down to people are idiots. They do not know how to make good decisions for themselves. Therefore, if we let people make all of their economic decisions for themselves, they'll suffer, they'll die, they'll have horrible financial lives. And so we need to step in and make decisions that are better for everybody so that we can all thrive. And so the way to do that is to take control of the flow of resources and capital in an economy by taking pure control of the money supply. If I can purely control the money supply or as much as possible, then I can control where the flow of resources go, how those resources are distributed throughout an economy, and we don't have to suffer from the idiotic idiotic decisions of the individual. We can say, we're going to transfer wealth away from people who are rich to people who are poor, because that will be better for everybody. We can stop transactions from happening when gas gets too high because um, there are some people who are hoarding gas, and so that will be better for everybody. And we can effectively control the flow of resources over the whole entire economy to the point where everybody is better off and we thrive instead of if everybody makes their own decisions, we have we have a lot of incompetence or malevolence or allocations. So it comes, all, it, that's where the road leads. We're not anywhere near that yet, but we are going that direction where policymakers, especially on the left, want to take control of the resources in the economy because they think they know better. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. And presumably that's where uh, CBDCs come into play, right? That you end up having central bank digital currencies as the hope on their end for the end goal of trying to control where, quote unquote, money is spent. But obviously it has all kinds of other issues attached to it. Yeah, exactly. Because up to this point, they've had to rely on, from monetary policy, they've had to rely on brute force tactics like interest rates and quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. Those are not fine-tuning dials. They can't precisely control things. They can just kind of cause you know, the, the tide to rise and the tide to fall. They've also relied on fiscal policy. So it takes years to get legislation passed, regulations, laws for tax laws to change, tariffs to change to try and make the, the resources flow into one country, out of another country for different sectors to be benefited, like green at green tech, like solar panels or other industries to be punished. So it takes a long time. It's again, not a fine tuning instrument. And so the more they try and move this direction, the end game really is the central bank digital currency, because at the end of the day, that's just one bank that has everybody's bank accounts. And if the central bank has everybody's bank accounts, they can credit money to certain accounts, debit money from other accounts, stop transactions from taking place, cause transactions to take place. You don't need to go through legislation. You don't need to go through Congress. You don't need to wait for bureaucracies. You don't need to care about votes to cause things to happen. You can say, oh, from a monetary policy standpoint, we've got too much inflation. So we're going to you know, debit everybody's accounts by 10% this month. Or we don't have enough inflation in a certain area. So we're going to have, we're going to give everybody a thousand bucks, but it's going to expire at the end of the month if you don't spend it. Oh, and by the way, we don't want to cause a bubble in asset prices. So this can't be transferred to a brokerage account to buy stocks with. You can only buy you know, regular goods and services with this. So it immediately allows fine tuning of control, very precise control over the flow of all resources, all capital in the entire economy. 
it's interesting because I mean, yeah. On the one hand, you can make an argument that that you can make the case of that could result in a more efficient system because you know if you can target based on zip codes or where inflation is looking more disinflationary to try and bring it up to some kind of average number that might create sort of a more level playing field, right? It's kind of like, you know, when, when people say inflation is high, well, inflation in New York is much higher than inflation in Nebraska, right? Or, or other parts of the country, for example. So there is an argument to be made that CBDCs, you can make the case would actually be beneficial from that perspective because you can get nuanced on location. But the privacy issue is, I think, the bigger concern, right? And and I always go back to, even going back to my own studies in American history, that privacy was never a guarantee in the Constitution. That's it was correct. always implied in, in the courts, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah. an implied type of dynamic. But a lot of people view privacy as a fundamental right. But if you're in this environment where CBDCs get, and technology, of course, gets more out there, and people cede more control to policymakers who use their data to create the more efficient system, that has a real implication on societal health, I would argue. Yes. So that is pro- the, the privacy is probably the thing that people will be most concerned about. I would argue that that's not the correct thing to be concerned about in this day and age with the the, the I, the CIA, the NSA, the, the Homeland Security, the amount of uh, tracking and information that the government has on us. There's, uh, we're basically already there from a privacy standpoint anyway. I would argue that the most important issue is actually the economic calculation one. Because like you said, you can make a case that it sounds like if they do it right, then it could be very beneficial. The problem is that's a very big if. And so I'll give you an example here. Economic calculation comes down, the problem with economic calculation and why it doesn't work from a top-down perspective and works best from bottom up is because value is subjective and is determined at the margins. And so what what we mean by what I mean by that is when you go to a, a restaurant, you order a burger, you want that burger more than you want the five dollars in your pocket right now. Maybe you order two burgers because you want those two burgers more than you want the the $10 in your pocket. When you make that exchange, both you and the restaurant have actually profited because you have gotten something that you value higher than what you gave up. Now, the restaurant profited and everybody will agree because they got $10 for two burgers and they wanted those $10 more. But if you don't get those $10, you're not going to, or if you don't get those two burgers, you're not going to be able to go on and do the things that you need to do. And you highly, you more highly value those two burgers. Now, this is not objective because if it was objective and those two burgers were actually objectively more valuable than the $10, you would buy an unlimited amount of burgers. You would spend all of your money on the burgers because they're objectively more valuable. But that's not the case. And it's not the case anywhere, anytime. Value is not subjective. Exchange happens because both parties want what the other party has more than what they currently have. And that's why things like homes are built. Because me as a lumber producer, I I would rather have the dollars than the lumber, but the person who buys the lumber is going to go build a house and they're going to walk away with more wealth than what they spent to build the house. And so the, the ability for exchange to happen on a free basis means that we will all go throughout our lives and make decisions ranking things and the things that we value the most. So If I'm going to do something right now, I value that more highly than literally anything else I could possibly be doing or exchanging for. Now, anytime then you have something come in and artificially change that, stop it, or force a different exchange to happen, by definition, you are causing something that creates less value to happen. Because if I want to go buy five burgers, or if the burger company wants to sell me five burgers, but I'm restricted by law to only buy four because of a money hoarding law or a burger hoarding law. Now that company cannot profit as much as they would have otherwise. So whenever you, from the top, artificially impose any sort of transaction can have, has to stop taking place or has to take place, a flow of resources to happen in one way or another, at the individual level, you cause less wealth to be created. And that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that you actually cause a destruction of wealth. This is seen in like many cities that raise special taxes to build stadiums for sports facilities. And you have a big destruction of wealth take place because it wasn't profitable for the companies to do that on their own. So they had to get the government to forcefully take extra money away from the citizens to pay for that. And then it's a money drain on the city that would not have been there otherwise. So you have a destruction of wealth take place when you have a top-down decision 
to make something happen that individuals would not have chosen otherwise. And so that's why these systems, when they do start and they do devolve into pure totalitarian control, they eventually fail because you destroy the golden goose that was laying the eggs. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. Everybody here, just to reset the room for the remaining half an hour, first of all, make sure you follow Joseph here on Twitter and obviously check out his YouTube channel, which you know has uh, some really great content. And he's, as you can tell, a very strong communicator. Jo- Joseph, you mentioned lumber, and that happens to be my right eye on my Twitter profile. And I, I've said this many <laughs> times, it's amazing to me how people you know, when they talk about uh, or when they tweet at me saying, I don't understand why you focus on lumber so much, it makes no sense to use it as a signal for the stock market. My response is always, well, you're tweeting from your home. So obviously it has some bearings on, on risk <laughs> assets, right? But but let's talk about housing for a moment. I, I, I recall you saying in a, in a prior conversation, I think that you're, are you in Arizona? Yes. Okay. So with those charts have been circling, circulating around Twitter for the last week or so, this sort of real collapse happening with home values in, in Phoenix. And, you know, you're seeing it on the peripheral side of uh, the very hot markets. You know, you're seeing some real mean reversion in prices and affordability mm-hmm. starting to come back in. Is it fair to say that you cannot stop inflation unless you, you collapse housing, right? It's more than a discussion around stocks, because stocks really are only held by a relatively small percentage of the population. Most people's wealth is in their homes. And right, homeowners exactly. equivalent rent is obviously a big portion of, of inflation. So talk through the housing market here in the context of all this debt, what the Fed is trying to accomplish and inflation overall. Yes. Okay. So a couple things. First, I actually disagree with the statement that a lot of people say, like a lot of Austrian economists as well, say that you cannot stop inflation unless you bring rates above and actively try and stop it. Really, the only thing you need to do is stop doing anything. And this goes back to the reason why the boom is happening, the inflation is happening, is because of an increase in the money supply. But that's built on debt. And eventually, once prices stop going up, everything automatically reverses. It's like a a rocket ship you know, going up in the air. As soon as it runs out of fuel, it will fall back down to the earth. Because that boom was unsustainable due to the fact that it was based on artificial growth in the money supply built on debt. So once the debt starts getting more expensive because inflation pushes rates up, once the debt starts getting defaulted on, money supply collapses. Once the debt starts getting paid back because it's too expensive to keep all that debt, the prices start to collapse because the money supply starts to collapse. So there's not enough money going around to continue to support those higher prices. And so without doing anything, you just stop intervening. You stop increasing the money supply. Eventually, everything collapses. So we will, if, if let's say the Federal Reserve sticks to their word for the next 10 years and the money supply does not grow for the next 10 years, the prices of everything will start to collapse incredibly. It will be, it, it could be devastating. It could be, you know, Great Depression level, air, like levels of falls in prices across the board, because we've got so much leverage that's built up that doing nothing will allow a big deleveraging to happen. That being said, nobody believes that that's going to happen, and expectations play a huge role in this. So let's move on to housing. Then, when we look at housing, there there are the macro factors, and then there are also like just supply and demand factors. So after the financial crisis, building stopped. When you track the, you can look up on the, the Federal Reserve, they've got you know a bunch of charts. You can look up the, the total U.S. housing units divided by population. We're nowhere near where we were in 2007, 2008, 2009. Building collapsed and population kept on growing. And so we went 10 years where a lot of people were saying, I'm going to wait to buy until the next collapse. Well, when, when 2020, 2021 happened, a lot of people started buying because it became extremely affordable to buy despite the prices going up because interest rates were so low. And so your monthly payment gets locked in for 30 years at something extremely affordable compared to rent. So many, many people bought. That brought a lot of purchasing of homes forward from the future into the present. Now we're at a point where home prices have stalled. On average, they dropped month over month. Still up year over year, but month over month, they dropped in July. They're still unaffordable though. Even if we have a drop in prices, interest rates are still going up. The Fed is still committed to raising interest rates. Mortgage rates will respond. So homes are still unaffordable. So we're in this position right now where 67% of US of Americans are homeowners. That means 67% of people cannot afford to sell their home. Because if you want to sell your home for the price that it's at right now, you've got to go buy another home. 
but interest rates are way higher than where most people have a mortgage right now. And so they can't afford to go buy another home because the same home with a new mortgage will cost them twice as much. So nobody can afford to sell right now because they can't afford to buy. And so the people who are being forced out that are having to sell, they're saying, okay, I've got $200,000 worth of equity right now based on my my Zillow estimate. I'll drop it by 10,000. I'll drop it by 50,000. Hopefully I can sell at break even. But if they can't sell at break even, then a lot of homes are going to start coming off the market and they're just not, people are not going to sell them because they can't afford to sell it for less than what they bought it for, especially considering if they do sell, they're going to buy something that's more expensive. And so we have this situation right now where yes, prices are collapsing quickly from like people who are listing their homes because there's people desperate trying to get out right now. But by and large, most people can't afford to sell their homes right now because they can't afford to buy something else. And if that wasn't the case, you would see you would see rents really cheap right now if the supply was the same as it was, you know, 12, 13 years ago, and people would be selling and moving out to go rent. But rents are increasing across the nation and they have been for the last couple of years as well. So it's a supply versus demand issue. It's a population demographics versus total housing units issue right now. That being said, the big caveat there was nobody can afford to buy a new home, so they're not going to sell their current home because they can afford their mortgage. But what if they can't afford the mortgage anymore? What if we get a big wave of unemployment, bankruptcies, layoffs? That could definitely happen if we continue to see this tightening happen. If this path continues, we could see layoffs, we could see bankruptcies, we could see unemployment. Then people would be forced out. They wouldn't have a choice. They would have to sell. And then we would continue to see the big collapse in home prices. But most people don't believe that it's going to get that far, that at some point before that, there'll be some sort of pain, bank collapse, hedge fund failure, something like that, systemic risk, Federal Reserve will step back in, bail the system out, especially if inflation has come down before then. So it's a matter of what comes first. If everything keeps on going the way it's going, yes, we get a big collapse of everything everywhere, but it's possible the the bailout comes first and the prices stop to drop. So I think think it's an interesting point because you need to, it's an odd thing to say that maybe the best hope for for the entire system is to have some kind of really negative deflationary shock, right, and events. Because inflation is more, I would argue, a, a process. You know, deflation tends to be more of an event because of some kind of shock that happens either on the geopolitical front or, or otherwise. And there are some of these real risks out there. I keep noting that the dollar has been unrelentingly strong in a way that suggests that a sovereign debt crisis may be incoming. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, that's not going to be inflationary, and that would then break everything faster, which may be exactly what the Fed really desperately needs to bring inflation under control. But that presumably also means that, to your point, housing would have some real, real aggressive mispricing, and that could usher in a very nasty recession, right? Because the Fed is going to do what it always does, which is act late. Yeah, exactly. And so the the problem is we're like we're stuck in this fiat world that's existed for you know fifty years. Throughout most of history, a slow rate of deflation was what always happened. If you look at the period of time from about 1870 to about 1910, there was slow deflation that happened during all of those decades. Real wages and real wealth increased, even though nominal wages decreased, because there was so the, the, the amount of wealth grew, the amount of stuff grew, the amount of abundance of food grew, the amount of abundance of clothing grew, housing grew, transportation grew. All the real stuff, the wealth, the stuff in the economy, it all grew. But there was no central bank. We didn't have the ability for the money supply and aggregate to just continue to expand faster than wealth grew. And so the prices fell as a result. That meant people were getting richer because I make $100 this year. Um, Next year, I make $99, but life only cost me $98. And so on a real basis, I actually got wealthier. And that's what happened during that entire time frame until the start of the Federal Reserve. And so we're in this unique period of history now where we have these inflation situations that are actually artificial, that are caused by trying to grow the money supply a little bit faster than the growth of the economy. And so because of that, we get this big buildup of debt because in an inflationary system, debt is incentivized because money gets worth less over time. So you'd rather spend more money now and then pay it back later when it's worth less. And another way of saying that is get your income from the future right now, spend it all right now, and then in the future, incomes will be higher because money will be worth less, and then it's easier to pay off that debt. So you get a big buildup of debt in inflationary systems. So when the inflation stops working, deleveraging starts to happen all at once. And then all the prices start to revert back to where they should have been all along, 
that causes a lot of pain because everything starts to collapse. And so you get these, like you said, these shocks that happen right now from the big deleveraging events, the big deflationary events that throughout history you would have never had under a sound money system. But unfortunately, right now in the fiat world, that is what we have to deal with. Yeah, which is interesting, right? Because if, if maybe the Fed really desperately wants to see some kind of crisis like that just so that they don't take the blame for this ongoing inflation pain and send they can deflect it on that that outside in quote unquote event that creates the the disinflationary pressure let's go for a question yeah that, that's a great question and the answer is yes but we have to distinguish between pure gold as money systems and then gold backed money systems so in a pure gold as money system you have a situation where the only way to get your hands on more money to earn more money yourself to increase your own wealth is to give society something that it wants enough to pay you money for it and so you have to create value you have to build a house you have to grow some food you have to perform a service and then somebody will give you their gold because they want that more than their gold the other way the only other way to get your hands on more money is to go dig it out of the ground so you go perform labor and spend money and time and go dig it out of the ground and then refine it. Well, let's say you stumble upon a very easy to mine amount of gold in the ground. So you start to pull it out. You're basically getting free wealth there. You're getting a lot more wealth than what it costs you to get it. But as soon as it, it gets to a point where, let's say, it does cause some inflation or you get through all the easy to get gold and now it takes it's a little bit harder to get that gold costs a little bit more money a little bit more time you go get an ounce of gold and now you can only get let's say you can get a thousand dollars worth of stuff for it but it it costs you a thousand dollars or eleven hundred dollars to get it whether that's in your wages per hour or whether that's in the capital it costs you to acquire it or refine it as soon as it tips over to where it's more expensive to dig that gold out of the ground than you could get just from performing other services the increase in the gold supply will stop. And so that's been the limit on the increase in gold globally for history. It's never increased more than 2% per year, the total supply, because as soon as it does, you get a little bit of inflation, and then it causes it to be worth less than what it costs to get it out of the ground. Now, this is different, though, than in a gold-backed system that you have with uh, like central banks. So an example of this is Great Depression, FDR outlaws gold ownership, confiscates gold from all American citizens to bring all the gold into the Federal Reserve. The reason he did that is because it was a fractional reserve system. So if the Federal Reserve gets one ounce of gold, they can lend out twice that, a much, that, that much in redeemable dollars. And so you get a, a way larger inflationary effect in a gold-backed system when you increase your gold reserves than you would from just a pure gold system. There is still the anchor. You just have a lot further higher to go and then a lot further down to go once the collapse happens. But it still does provide an anchor on how large that, that bubble, if you will, can get. Yeah, so since, since 1971, when the whole world went to a pure fiat standard, you have the start of just every country trying to manipulate its own currency in order to benefit it themselves enough, but not too much to where it disadvantages the rest of the world to the point where the rest of the world does not like it. So everybody, in, in you know, for the most part, tries to increase or decrease the values of their currency in conjunction with each other. But a lot of times it fails. And so you get these episodes of hyperinflation. Since 1971, we've had more episodes of hyperinflation than we had in all world history up until that point, because there is no there is no anchor other than political will to how much you can increase the money supply. So you get Argentina, you get Zimbabwe, you get Venezuela, you get Lebanon right now, you get Turkey right now, you get all these examples of hyperinflation because you you start to increase the money supply, things go wrong, some people don't have enough, so you increase the money supply a little bit more to help out those areas. But every time you do that, it causes prices to rise more. So you try and impose more controls as you increase the currency in order to help out those other issues. And then eventually, people lose faith in the currency and it, the value collapses relative to all other currencies. Yeah, great questions. Okay, so just to make sure I remember the first question, is there some sort of signal that we can look at and say, hey, the deleveraging has finished? 
we've bottomed out and we're going back up from here or you know at some point soon in the future and then the other question is even though even though the, the everybody is ma- manipulating their own currencies what's going on between the dollar which is getting strong right now versus other currencies what kind of harm could that play and then could we experience hyperinflation so the signals for when things have kind of bottomed are different based on monetary policy so if we have the the federal government and the federal reserve step in and say, you know, we are going to actually step out of this thing. We're not going to bail it out. We're not going to try and stimulate the economy. We're not going to try and take down the economy. We're just going to step out of its way, let it do its thing. Then you have you have a, a big collapse in prices of, of everything that does not happen all at once or does not happen uniformly. And eventually, then you have a recovery and a start over from scratch and rebuilding from a stronger foundation. After the deleveraging has happened, the defaults have happened, asset ownership is transferred from the too risky to the more conservative, from the people who have played it safe to the people who have you know played it you know a little bit smarter, the people who are more competent, and then you build from there. And so it does not happen all at once. And so one of the ways that you see it happening is whether inflation or deflation, it tends to follow this path. It hits asset prices first then goods and services, then wages. And the, there's a couple of reasons for that. This is identified by Richard Cantillon back in the Mississippi bubble in France 300 years ago. But essentially what happens is you have the money that is printed first. Let's say if we're talking about inflation, it's printed and it's given to people who get to spend it before everybody else does. So they get to spend it at the low, originally lower prices. As that money hits, goes from me to you and then from you to somebody else and then from them to somebody else, it goes from bank account to bank account, buying things, slowly increasing the money supply, bidding prices up. The big money and the people who get their hands on the money first, the people who are well-connected, the politicians, the executives, the hedge fund managers, the people in the financial industry, they all recognize that this policy is going to cause prices to go up. And so you get to buy the assets and you hold on to those assets throughout that cycle. And so you benefit from everything going up. Eventually, though, that causes the goods and services to go up, that causes the inflation, and then you get the wages to go up afterwards. And that's exactly what we've seen in 2020. Asset prices skyrocketed. 2021, goods and services started going up. Wages have started to catch up. Not as much, but they ha- they did start to go up afterwards. We're seeing the reverse of that take place now, where money, monetary supply, monetary policy gets tighter, which means all the big money knows hey, things are going to get tighter. Things are going to get harder. It's going to get harder to get your hands on money. That means spending is going to slow down. That means asset prices are going to suffer. So I'm going to sell my assets right now. So the first thing that happens is the asset prices fall in anticipation of the economy slowing down. And then the economy actually slows down at some point. And so we're going to see a slowdown and then a drop in inflation. And then wages as a result after that, you know, unemployment, layoffs, pay cuts, things like that. And so it does roll throughout the economy in an uneven way, not all at once. And depending on the asset, you know, the, like you said, the risk on assets, the risk off assets, the things like that are in really low supply, I would argue things like housing, commodities, food, those things tend to be more robust to the price drops because those are the things people are going to continue to buy before, you know, they'll give up buying their, their Luna or their Bitcoin or their whatever before they give up buying their gas to get to work. And so some things are a little bit more sticky than others. In terms of identifying, that's, you know, that's the game. That's the, that's, that's the hard part. That's, I, you know, identifying which areas have bottomed and which ones have not, which ones are starting a new cycle, which ones are not. Sometimes that comes down to just looking at monetary policy. Sometimes it comes down to looking at the fundamentals, it comes down to looking at sentiment. Like, I, I know of very, very, very few people who are bullish on real estate. It's like universally bearish on real estate. And so if you're, if you take that as a contrarian indicator, then that would be, that would be a sign that maybe relative to everything else, it'll be, it'll be more robust. So that's the game. Unfortunately, that's, that's an area where you would want to identify the fundamental drivers of prices in addition to what monetary policy is doing. Does that answer the first question? Yes. I mean, the things that are fundamentally destructive to wealth will fall the fastest and the most and potentially never recover. I mean, you've got, you've got businesses in easy money environments that start based on the assumption that the easy money will continue. And they're just trying to lose money for the longest amount of time possible to capture market share. But if the money flow stops and easy money gets cut off, well, all you've been doing is destroying money for you know five years, 10 years as you're trying to build your economic moat. And in an environment where nobody wants to give you new money anymore to continue to destroy it, then you're going to get shut down. 
And so things like that pop up during easy environments, and then they they end during the uh, tighter environment. And so there are there are areas that just don't ever come back because they're fundamentally not profitable. And then there's the shift into the areas that are like, hey, we're always going to need energy. We're always going to need housing. We're always going to need food. We're always going to need shelter, things like that. And so prices may fall, but you know, definitely not as much as like, you know, never recovering, because as long as there's a population, we're going to need the stuff to continue surviving as a population. The next question is about the the dollar versus other currencies and how their printing will impact things. The the dollar is tightening more than the rest of the world right now, which means the dollar is getting stronger versus the rest of the world. But the dollar is the global reserve currency. So if you're a country, if you're a business somewhere else, you most of the time you need to get dollars to be able to survive. That's squeezing the rest of the world very tight right now because it's making it more expensive to get dollars as the dollar is getting tighter. And so it's getting more and more expensive to do business. So it's getting harder and harder, pricier, tighter in other countries, and especially in emerging markets where every time this happens throughout history, you go look at every time the dollar has spiked significantly for a long period of time, you get an emerging markets crisis, you get a sovereign debt crisis somewhere in somewhere in Asia or Latin America or wherever it is, because it just becomes untenable. They cannot, they cannot continue to survive because they can't get the dollars that they need. And so we're... It, it, a lot of people think that we're on that path right now. It's just a matter of time before somebody blows up. And especially like hedge funds and banks, because they're invested in these things, especially with high leverage and relative value trades. This was the what took down long-term capital management in 1998, that they were invested in these relative value trades where they were betting on you know the, the spreads converging. They didn't converge. Russia blew up, defaulted on their debt. And long-term capital management isn't just a hedge fund, but they almost took down the entire global financial system. Everybody was invested with them. And so the Fed made the made Wall Street bail them out. So you have things like that take place every time the dollar starts to get stronger, emerging markets blow up. And so that's a very real possibility soon here. And in my opinion, it's only a matter of time before the rest of the world gets fed up with this and tries to look for an alternative to the dollar, in which case then you risk hyperinflation if the rest of the world stops wanting to use the dollar, because the only place those dollars can go is back to America. And the way that happens is by buying US assets, buying US goods, buying all our inventory, sending it back here for whatever they can get for those dollars. It's probably a long way from that happening. But in my opinion, it's only a matter of time before the rest of the world gets fed up with any abuse of the dollar on the global financial system and just decides to stop using dollars. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Okay, so we have four, there are only four possibilities for the quote unquote next monetary system. We are by by many measures, it looks like we're coming to the end of the fiat global monetary system. So there are four potential possibilities for the next one. Private ledger, public ledger, commodity money, commodity backed money. So we'll go through those in order. Uh, private ledger is something like Bitcoin. People, just individuals decide, I don't trust governments, I don't trust companies, I'm gonna just start using Bitcoin as my money. And governments and the world and companies have to follow because that's what every individual around the world decides to go towards. You may think that the possibility of that is absolutely zero. You may think the inevitability of that is 100%. That's up to you. That is a possibility that people move to a private ledger money like Bitcoin that nobody can control and everybody then uses Bitcoin as money and then new systems are built on top of that being money. The next possibility is private ledger. That is a central bank digital currency. Now, I say this because you might say, well, how, why is fiat doomed? Like we could just start a new fiat monetary system. That would be a central bank digital currency. The next evolution of fiat is a CBDC because you avoid all the problems of the fiat system that's built on debt, that was built on the old systems based on a fractional reserve system of a gold standard that has all of these problems that make it difficult for central planners to do what they want to do and central governments to do what they want. So a CBDC is the next step in that. If the dollar fails, they'll come out and say the dollar failed because we didn't have the power to do what we needed to do. So we're going to do a CBDC instead. That will give us the ability to do what we need to do. Many countries are pine, are testing CBDCs out right now and trying it. I think CBDCs are doomed to fail, but I think there's almost 100% chance that at least some countries use a CBDC for at least some amount of time. So that is one possibility. The next possibility is a commodity money system again. I think this is probably the least likely outcome because we haven't had a commodity money system in a very long time, hundreds of years, simply because of technology. So if, if your only economy is your local village, yes, you can use a commodity as money. You can 
give gold coins back and forth to each other. But the moment you need to transfer wealth to a different city, a different state, a different country, it becomes impossible to use a commodity itself as the money again, because it's too expensive to move it across space is what Safety Moose calls sealability across space. It's too expensive to move a gold coin physically from Florida to Beijing. It's just, you're not going to do it. And so, and the re, we, we have a global technological society now. And so nobody's going to do that. In my opinion, unless we have, you know, nuclear war and all the technology is destroyed and then we go back to, you know, you know, stone age type of thing. Yeah. Then commodity money is a possibility at that point. So then your alternative then to that is commodity backed money. So I don't need to physically transfer my gold physically from America to China or to the Middle East or wherever I'm sending a payment to. There are private vaults or government vaults that hold all that commodity, whether it's gold, whether it's oil, whether it's silver, whether it's platinum, uranium, whatever it is, the commodity is stored and held by a trusted third party. And when I send a payment from me to you, I have written ownership in that third party's vault. And now when I send a payment to you, I transfer that ownership over to you. So the physical commodity doesn't move. It's just the ownership gets transferred from me to you. And that's how technology solves the saleability across space for physical commodities. We have a lot of countries right now trying to move towards a system like this. Many central banks around the world have been stockpiling gold for decades since 1999 have been increasing their gold reserves, buying gold on net for decades. Countries like Russia, the BRICS countries, India, China, South Africa, Egypt, Turkey, they are all saying, hey, we really like uh, the idea of going back to a fiat currency that is backed by some sort of a commodity or basket of commodities, whether it's gold, oil, whatever it is. And so that is a very real possibility. And in my opinion, the most likely outcome is at the end of this current monetary system, it will be replaced by multiple monetary systems that will all compete for a winner-takes-all game. So you'll have some countries go to commodity-backed money. You'll have some countries go to a CBDC. You'll have some countries go to Bitcoin, like El Salvador. And the best one over the long term will win. Who knows what that will be? But in my opinion, we're going to have a more fractured monetary system in the future than what we currently have. Yeah, I would I would myself agree with that as well. We're a little bit over here. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Joseph. Check out his YouTube channel as well. Joseph, first time you and I are chatting. Hopefully we'll do this again. Really appreciate your time and everybody joining. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Joseph. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.